we have I, I spoke to a photographer two days ago and her youngest daughter is so creative and there is no outlet for that in school yeah she you know she there's just we've we've stripped away so much of that stuff and we're not we're, because it's not seen as a as important it's not as important as english and maths and all that stuff My daughter has a real strength of character and it was that strength of character which basically said, do you know what, I can't do this, I'm not doing this. And her biggest issue, I suspect, was trust. Seven hundred and seventy-one thousand persistent absentees, so that's children missing 10% or more. Uh, for 43% of those absences, we have no formally recorded reason. I've seen I've seen articles in Schools Week where a school makes all of those children go to the back of the lunch queue. So only you only go to the front if you've got 100% attendance badges. Welcome to the Qualified Tutor Podcast. I'm your host, Ludo Miller, and I'll be interviewing tutors and thought leaders from across the tutoring landscape to inspire, inform, and motivate you to become the best tutor you can be. The Qualified Tutor Community is a safe and supportive space for tutors who love to learn and grow. We offer training, resources, ideas, and a chance to connect with like-minded tutors. If you'd like to continue the conversation... Join our Qualified Tutor Community at www.qualifiedtutorcommunity.org or find it in the show notes. This week, we speak to Fran Morgan, founder of SquarePeg, an organisation set up, in her own words, as a response to anxiety-related school attendance difficulties. In this conversation with Julia Silver, Qualified Tutor's founder, Fran speaks frankly and openly about her own daughter's attendance difficulties and how here in the UK, we are in desperate need for reform in the way the system operates. Fran has extensive experience in the area of school and parental support, and it's a pleasure to welcome her onto the Qualified Tutor podcast, which has grown such depth in recent episodes. This area is of paramount importance in the time of lockdown, and Fran goes some way to discussing a solution to the current situation. Listen in for a fascinating, profound and moving conversation. Fran, last time we spoke, you made such an impression on me. And to be honest, I've discussed you with so many people since because you really opened my eyes to a whole world um, of barriers for attendance is the phrase that you taught me. Mm. Um, and we're going to discuss in a minute why you don't like the phrase school refusers. Yeah. But if you could explain to us first, please, how you got into this world and also so, so your personal story and also what it looks like on a national scale. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes, of course. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, so I've been in this world for about 12 years. Um, my youngest daughter, who is now 21, um, was a school refuser, and I know we're going to talk about that term, uh, started first in primary uh, when she was eight. Uh, she did a couple of years fine, and then the transition to secondary, um, everything fell apart. Um, and I think... Um, she never talked about it. And one of the biggest issues that we might come onto is masking. So her, her sole ambition at school was to stay under the radar, to be a model pupil, not to draw attention. Um, but the consequence at home was that we had very challenging behavior. 
um, because the stress of keeping it together at school. And quite often when you when you say that to schools, they say, oh, no, she's fine when 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 she's here. And maybe it's a problem at home, you know. Um, and just to illustrate that point really pertinently, I can remember a parents evening where um, I spoke to a teacher and I was talking about some of the things we were dealing with at home. And she said, I'm so sorry. I thought you were Meg's mum. Oh. I am. <laughs> Uh, that's how different uh, the behaviour was. Um, so the transition to secondary, uh, we did a term and that was it. And I think my daughter has a real strength of character and it was that strength of character which basically said, do you know what, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. And her biggest issue, I suspect, was trust. She didn't trust uh, the people who were supposed to be keeping her safe to do so. And she didn't trust that I was safe at home. And this all started after a really traumatic summer. So, you know, there may well have been trauma in there, which nobody picked up. Um, so that's that's kind of our story. It just briefly, um, secondary school, we found a different secondary school. And this just shows that it can be done. A deputy head who had a completely different ethos, who felt that his school is there for that local community, whatever that looks like. And if that looks like children like Meg, then so be it. So we had a fortnightly exchange of work. It was paid for under a statement of educational needs. She she did not need that. That cost Sari £100,000. It was not necessary. Um, but it was the only way to um, facilitate that change. Um, we had a fortnightly exchange of work. He registered our home as an exam centre. Wow. And sent invigilators so that she could take her GCSEs. And that then allowed her, I mean, it was her, it was really her that did it, to go into mainstream sixth form. Right. And I don't think, she would never have gone into a sixth form in a school, I don't think. But the beauty of a sixth form college is that power balance that I think we talked about before is much more equal. First name terms, you're here because you want to be here. We can't make you do anything. Uh, and, that, and that's a really good transition to university. So she's now finished a degree. One of our participants last night mentioned exactly that that there was something striking about how much more quickly they were able to build trust in sixth form because of the first name terms and the and the closer, um, yeah, power balance. It's, um, yeah, mutual respect. Yeah, yeah, and less crowd control. I mean, the, the problem, it, it strikes me, I tell you what, it, it strikes me that these children are canaries and they are, they are indicating a bigger problem and they're just the ones who are on the one hand sensitive and on the other hand determined enough to tell us it doesn't work um, and another one of the participants last night said that her, her teachers at the end of the year gave everybody a little miss book and she was a little miss contrary and they met it in the nicest way because she had her own way of doing things and her own way of learning so 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 that's really why that's why I felt such alignment with, with where you're coming from and what you're talking about, because, well, obviously because it's coming from your own life experience, but there's this sort of bigger change that you're mm. supporting. Mm. Um, and and tell us about, tell, tell us about what it looks like. Nationally. In the big picture, yeah. yeah. So, so the, I say these statistics so often and they shock me every time. Yeah. So 771,000 persistent absentees. So that's children missing 10% or more. Uh, for 43% of those absences, we have no formally recorded reason. A school will record their own reasons, um, uh, which may or may not be uh, accurate. Uh, 
but officially no recorded reasons. And, and for 60,000 children, they miss half of the academic year. And when you compare those figures to the stats for exclusion, for example, that's 10 times the number of children who have more than one fixed period exclusion. But because exclusion and challenging behaviour are things that have to be addressed, um, and, you know, uh, uh, and because they have a lot of uh, attention on them, um, you know, there's a lot happening in that arena. And this just seems invisible, seems completely invisible. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, rise. I work with another group called Not Fine in School, which now has 13,500 parent members on a closed Facebook group. Brilliant place for supporting parents not whose children are struggling, not fine in school. Um, uh, and um, that's been growing at between six and 800 new members a month. Mm. So what I've seen in 12 years is that problem get much worse. I think if my daughter was going through it now, we would have a very different experience. And I don't know where she'd be, if I'm honest. Um, I don't even know if she'd still be here. Um, because so many things, budget cuts, we've lost support staff, we've got an overly academic curriculum, we've got much more pressure testing. You know, children these days are under a lot more pressure anyway, social media. Um, we have some of the least happy children in the world. How sad is that? Um, and I think what we have to remember, we have this narrative from government, which is attendance equals attainment. Well, I'd like to rephrase that, happiness and health equals attainment. And attainment is different for every child. It's not 10 GCSEs and university for lots of children. Um, but we have this very narrow, rigid, one-size-fits-all view of education. And, and, and we've talked a lot about that last night, and it has to change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we certainly subscribe to that change ourselves. We, um, one of our house rules in Qualified Tutor is that there's more than one right way. Yeah. Um, and 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 letting people understand that there's more than one right way um, is very, very enabling because we're so outcomes focused. Um, we take our eye off the process and the process of learning is what we want our children to feel comfortable with um, instead of making them jump through hoops. It's not serving them. It's not serving their future. I'm interested to know, Fran, how COVID has affected all of this. Yeah, massively. It's shone a real light. So... <laughs> At the beginning, I think we were all quite excited that this might provide a whole new opportunity. You know, we had to do remote learning. Mm. Um, you know, this could be the real opportunity for change. And I'm still hopeful, but um, I think my hope is somewhat diminished. Uh, I think remote learning could have been something very different, something much more engaging, um, synchronous. So, you know, there could be there could be socialising, there could be lots more that could be done. Um, and the government has chosen to basically put recorded, video recorded lessons online, which is which is a shame. Um, uh, I think we're seeing different cohorts of children. So all the children who were previously struggling, and one of the messages we're trying to say now is that this was going on way before the pandemic. Uh, but those children now will really struggle because they've been off for such a long time. A lot of them have healed in lockdown. They've their stress has been reduced, uh, parental stress has been reduced without the threat of fines and prosecutions. Um, we're trying to do a project to show that they have actually engaged more with learning in that environment than, than they would do stressed at school. Um, uh, and I think we saw a bit of a honeymoon period the first week where those kids thought, you yeah, know, I can do this. There's lots of new factors that have come into play. And I think the attendance narrative 
has become much more forceful. Right. So according to the government, the only reason a child should be at home is if they're self-isolating or they're shielding with a consultant's endorsement. That's it. No other reason. It's a blunt tool. It's a broad sweep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we need to, the, the, the accountability measures they often put in place to try and improve attendance and reduce exclusions are often so punitive that they don't, they don't work. They, they're often counterproductive. Um, and I, and I, we would love to evidence the fact that the attendance policy as it stands, this kind of fines and prosecutions for parents, is, is punitive and not working. It's not working. So, so, so let's follow up with that for a second and then we'll talk about some bright spots. So talk, talk to us about codes, about attendance codes and why they cause the, they, they, they reinforce our problem. Okay, so uh, the attendance policy is non-statutory and that outlines, I think there are 23 codes for absence, which include holiday, illness, all sorts of things. Um, uh, so that's non-statutory, but the school census is statutory and within the school census, schools have to submit not all but a lot of those codes and the codes that are most often used if your child is struggling to attend will be O which is other unauthorized absence there's a C which is other authorized absence there's an N which is no reason yet and then there's I which is illness and it's up to the school leader whether they authorize your absence or not um, if they don't, a lot of people are coded O, so it's unauthorised. And I think the problem with all of the coding system is that even if you have a school leader who gets it, that there's an issue going on here, parent is doing everything they can, none of those absence codes are intended for any length of time. Right. So, and you can't access services. So a child may need a CAMS referral, 18 months in Brighton. Right. You know, and in the meantime, I think if a school leader puts a lot of these codes down, they will be judged by Ofsted, possibly by their academy trust, I don't know, by local authority. Um, they're measured against attendance. And whilst the Ofsted framework has changed, it's still about the data. It's not about what you might have put in place. So if you've managed to get a child up from 50% to 75%, you don't get any marks for that <laughs> because it's still way below the threshold. And I know ex-head teachers who've had school attendance targets in their personal performance review and high targets, 96.4%. And if they don't meet that, then, then they suffer personal consequences. You know, adopt pension or... And, and the target goes up. And now, a brief word from our founder, Julia Silver. If you'd like to hear more about the ideas we touch on here, or gain the tools to take your own tutoring to the next level, the qualification for tutors could be for you. This live online seminar is facilitated by industry experts who over four Zoom workshops will cover the foundations of teaching and learning and how it relates to you as a tutor. The workshops are full of rich discussions where you'll learn alongside other tutors and connect on a professional level. We will teach you how to be the kind of tutor every child remembers. Visit our community space at qualifiedtutorcommunity.org and sign up now for our transformative course. We'll see you there. I visited a school in London um, and the children were so welcoming and we were chatting with the year sevens in the playground. And um, one of them was wearing a badge that had a hundred on it. Mm -hmm. And I asked her what this hundred meant and she said it meant a hundred percent attainment. Mm -hmm. 
And the girl next to her, well, the, the lovely teacher I was with, who's a very soft year one teacher said, don't you find that difficult, 100% attainment? What if you're not feeling well? What about in the winter? And the children, I might have to cut this out of the pod, to be honest, but the child said, it's all right. If you're feeling sick, they'll give you a bucket. Oh, that's shocking, isn't it? It's shocking. And there are class attendance figures. And, and I can come back to, for some children, this is just not possible. It's the equivalent of an adult nervous breakdown. I cannot function. An anxiety disorder, that is the definition. It affects your day-to-day -day living. So to, 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 to mark them down yet again and to, and to put them against their peers, we didn't get a class attendance thing because of you. Um, there are, I've, seen, I've seen articles in Schools Week where a school makes all of those children go to the back of the lunch queue. So only, you only go to the front if you've got 100% attendance badges. And, and, and I, I hate all of that. It's not, it's not the way to do it. We need compassion. We need to understand what's going on. We need to build trust and relationship. It's, it, yeah. Yeah. You've touched on it and we will get to bright spots. Tell me what the barriers for attendance really are and tell me why you hate the phrase school refusers. Okay, so the second question first. School refusal implies willful choice. Right. And it's not a choice. I can't do this. I cannot do this. And quite often I cannot tell you why. I just can't do it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it puts the problem on the child. The child is the refuser. Um, anxiety is the trigger but the problem with the word anxiety and some people talk about school-based anxiety is for me it quite often prompts the response hey we all get anxious get over it you know children have to learn to deal with their anxiety and and that is a common approach we, we we're not going to look at what the problem is and try and solve it we're just going to teach a child how to be more resilient god i hate that word um, and, and learn to deal with their anxiety so they can cope uh, you know really really um, so that's the problem. So I think barriers to school attendance, it takes the problem somewhere else. It, there are a multiplicity of barriers and I think it's really helpful to look at it in that, in that way. Um, so what are they? Um, I think that has changed in recent years. The SEND reforms uh, five, six years ago were fantastic. Implementation of the SEND reforms and the funding that went along with them, not so much. So I think there are much, I'm, I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I think there are a much higher proportion of children in that group now who have either undiagnosed SEND or they have an EHCP or they have a diagnosed, people know what their needs are, but they're not being supported. So the EHCP is an educational healthcare plan. Yeah. That's what the special educational needs coordinator in a school will work towards getting a child who meets a certain threshold to help them get funding from the government. Yeah, yeah. And and the SEND reform, so so you know, there's sort of tiers, aren't there? There's universal all children, there's SEN support in a school, and the school is expected to support at that level. And then there's an education, health and care plan where that level of support is no longer sufficient. And the, and the process, there's a, there's a lengthy process, you have to ask to be assessed. In the reforms, in the legislation, if a parent says, I think my child needs to be assessed, or the school says that, then technically you should get the assessment. But um, on average, still 25% of those are refused. Because there are gatekeeping procedures. If we say no, a lot of parents will just go away and they'll give up. Um, then the next step is to have the assessment. Quite often people have done all of that work to get the yes to assess. 
and and the tribunal system is ridiculous. There are parents now going to tribunal several times for one education, health and care plan. Um, and and ninety percent of parents win at tribunal, which tells you something. Right. It tells you that there's something wrong. So anyway, we, we we kind of anyone in that world knows that that system isn't working very well. And and um, the pain that you described for the family that's going through that process. Unreal, unreal. I I'd love to know how many parents have gone to do a law degree in order to be able to support their child, or a psychology degree, or something like you know that people move house. Um, the stress, the finance, most of the most of the families, one parent will have had to give up work. Right. The stress of going to court, the intimidation, you know, not many people can afford solicitors and, you know, private assessments and all of that. It's the consequences are horrendous. And we haven't even touched on the consequence of low attendance where safe, it, it's a red flag on safeguarding policies. So on top of everything else, you may well have a social services referral solely because of the low attendance. And that referral won't be a default of support, it will be a default of we're checking that you are not abusing or neglecting your child. Um, so just an added stress. Um, but coming back to the barriers, so, so SEND is a big one. Yeah. Um, undiagnosed or unsupported bullying, yeah. trauma, uh, sometimes an anxiety disorder, a child that is inherently more of a worrier than, than another child, but that can be compounded because there is no flexibility. So if they had, you know, if there was patience and time and a bit of flexibility, they might never reach that level of anxiety. But because this system is fixed, this is, you have to come in at this time, you have to stay this long, you have to do five days, you have to sit in that chair. All the coercion stuff that we talked about last night in that, in that webinar. Um, yeah, then the anxiety escalates. And quite often the response to a child that's struggling to attend exacerbates the problem. It's a hostile response. It's often a letter, you know, the law says your child must go to school. I, I think my child, I can remember four instances at least when my daughter was told that we would go to prison if she didn't go to school. That's, that's not uncommon. How is that helping anybody, you know? Um, and I, I do, I have to say that I often talk about schools being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yes. And my criticism is with the system. Yes. It's not with, there are some amazing staff, amazing senior leadership, amazing schools. The system and the narrative that comes out of government and Ofsted is, is, my, is my problem. <laughs> got it, I got it. So now let's talk about bright spots and you've touched yeah. on compassion and you've touched on flexibility and trust. Yeah. Describe to us the schools who are who are doing it right. Okay, so I think trauma-informed schools, which is a particular approach based on all of those things, um, are starting, there is there is growing body of evidence to say that they are reducing exclusions and absence through their approach. And it's not rocket science. I mean, there is, a, uh, there is training that can be done, but the key is that it has to come from senior leadership down and it has to run through the school like uh, a stick of Blackpool rock. That's the only way. Because if you think it, every single member of staff has agency in this and they have to all be following the same ethos. You know, you can work really hard to get a child back into school and it takes one member of staff to say, oh, thanks for gracing us with your presence, you know. And you can undo, and it might be a, a throwaway remark, 
but it's about each person understanding the importance of, of everything they say and the things that they can do to make a difference. Um, so trauma-informed schools, and it, it, it's, it's so not rocket science. It's about trust, honesty, transparency, communication, compassion. Everything, I mean, I believe, and I know a lot of other people do, that, you know, every behaviour is a means of, is a need. It's a communicating a need. That, that children have a limited amount of things, particularly in a school environment, in terms of the ways that they can communicate that they have a problem. So Acting out is one, and, and withdrawing and masking is another. Say that again. So, so we often talk about exclusion and school refusal as two sides of the same coin. Right. So if a child has a problem, yes. their means of communicating that problem can be limited. You know, in an adult world, you might be able to say, okay, I'm going to pull myself together, I'm going to go to my boss, and I'm going to explain what is going on with me. Children are often not able to do that. So they can act out, behave badly, get excluded, and they can withdraw and mask. And those are the really worrying ones because they're no trouble. So often you're so busy with a class of 30 and, and you know, several kids with SEND and some other kids acting out that they go unnoticed. And I think that's where the loss of a lot of support staff has really hit home because those are the staff that might notice maybe after a lunch break, you know, something's gone on. You know, I can see that this child isn't, isn't quite right. And with, you know, teachers with the best will in the world, with, the, with what they have to deal with in their job now, it's imp almost impossible, I think, to be able to look out for all of them. So talk about flexibility then. Well, the system doesn't allow it, but, but ideally, you know, there are things like part-time timetables, there is blended learning, um, there is flexi schooling, um, but they're all difficult to implement within the current system. You know, they're difficult for school leaders to justify, I think. They make life pro probably more difficult for, for the teachers, for teaching. Right. You know, it's much easier to have everyone sat on a seat, absorbing the same amount of information at the same time, than to have to make allowances for individual children, isn't it? There's a lot of conversation around the fact that schools were designed in the industrial age for an industrial system, yeah. um, and that education factories are no longer what we need. So you mentioned right at the beginning of this lovely conversation that your daughter was schooled at home all the way until sixth form. So yeah. who was that? Who was that um, and supported that? So there's a really important distinction. This wasn't home education, which okay. is an elective choice. Um, this was, um, I guess it would be called the OTAS, education other than at school. So it was paid for by the local authority through the school. We found a fantastic tutor. Oh who set up some of the first proofs in the county, actually. She, was a, a, she had a wealth of experience and I quite often talked about a toolbox. So she would quite often change tack. Something's not working right. Let's do something different. And some days she'd come down and she'd say to me, do you know what? Let's start again tomorrow. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave like today. And, and the first, goodness knows how long, months and months, was not about education at all. It was about building trust both of them getting to know each other, taking Meg away from me, it's okay, you know, going out, going to a garden centre, buying a cup of tea, building self-esteem. Self-esteem is at the root of so much of this for children. So we need to be loving them and nurturing them. There's a wonderful um, uh, Academy Trust leader um, called Dave Whitaker who talks about battering them with kindness. Yes. And I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, and I think, you know, it... it it's anti-bullying week. Even the bullies, there is a reason why bullies do that. Yes. 
And with children, with children and young people, we need to be searching underneath those behaviours and supporting them and helping them. And yeah. Yes, we need to be much more gentle and much more nuanced and have an approach that actually starts with where the child is and goes. There are, there are schools that are doing, you know, there's a, there's a great trust in, up in Doncaster XP and, and they, they, they build the curriculum into projects. Ah. so much more engaging for children you know really exciting I think often they they link in with the local community so they're helping in that respect as well and I'm sure it's much more work for them because they're taking this national curriculum despite the national curriculum they're managing to create something much more engaging so there's some wonderful examples of things going on but I think I honestly think we are creating a generation of children with problems that we are then struggling to fix Yes. Higher exclusion, higher absence, higher send. And, and some of this just shouldn't be necessary. Right. It shouldn't be. Yeah. So let's leave us on let's leave us on an on an upbeat note and, and and give us a takeaway. Okay. What can we do as a community of educators and parents and people who care about students? What can we do to help? Okay. So I suppose individuals, I talked about every individual has agency and that is everybody, tutor, teacher, parent. I suppose gen up on some of this stuff, understand it better, work on building relationships, I'm sure you do anyway. Um, I think I have a, another plea, which is that there is a massive groundswell for change. Right. So we started something called School Differently. And the idea behind that is that instead of having isolated conversations, and there are some fantastic organisations, big ones, who've been in that space for a long time, big education, for example. But let's have, a, let's have a collaborative conversation and see what we can do against this brick wall that is the current government and system. You know, how can we get round it? Can we dismantle that wall brick by brick? And I think it is starting from the ground up with some fantastic schools, new ideas, new programmes, new projects. So I have real hope. But um, yeah, I, I think everyone needs to feel that they have agency but you've got to understand this issue and where it comes from neurologically in a way um it, it's about anxiety and quite often if you if you compared it to the adult world you know we say in the adult world it's okay not to be okay it's okay talk to people it's really important to talk you know we expect employers to be empathetic to make to, to be flexible to to you know to listen to employees who are struggling you compare that with education and children. There's no time. There's no. Re there's not enough resource. Um, you know, we we have to. I think it's a really useful comparison to think about. Wow, you know, you wouldn't expect that actually in the workplace, would you? <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. I think our children work much harder than the adults do. I think that we have much more agency, um, and 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 we're very grateful for the opportunity to to share your message and. Um, and this silent problem with our listeners and um we'd we'd, we'd love to join you in um Fantastic. trying to help so thanks thank you so much julia it's been a pleasure yeah it really was very generous of you thank you thank you have a great day bye bye thanks for listening to the qualified tutor podcast where tutors share their expertise to support the tutoring community. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join our Qualified Tutor Community at www.qualifiedtutorcommunity.org or find it in the show notes below. 
We exist to connect, share and learn with you because tutoring is a small job that makes a big difference.